Delirium is common in the last weeks or days of life. It can be distressing for patients and those around them. A recent clinical review on the BMJ.com explains why successful management involves excluding reversible causes of delirium and balancing drugs that may provoke or maintain delirium while appreciating that most patients want to retain clear cognition at the end of life. I'm Kate Adlington, clinical editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by the authors of that paper. Firstly, we have Christian Hosker, consultant liaison psychiatrist with the Leeds and York Partnership Foundation Trust. Hello, Chris. Hello. And we also have Michael Bennett, professor of palliative medicine at the University of Leeds. Hello, Mike. Thank you for joining us. Hello. So, Chris, how common is delirium at the end of life? In a psychiatric sense, it's probably you know the single most common presentation that, that we'd expect to see in, in patients at the end of life. Probably you know up to sort of 80% of patients at the end of life are, are developing the syndrome. I guess one of the interesting facets is that there's this mismatch between how how common the presentation is and how adept we are at picking uh, the, the presentation up and identifying it. People often associate delirium with restlessness and agitation. And one of the important points you made in the article is about the distinction between hyperactive and the more subtle hypoactive delirium that's, as you, as you mentioned, is something that's often missed. How can we as, as clinicians distinguish between these two types of delirium and how, how important is that? I, I guess the under, for understandable reasons, it's, it's those patients that are up and out of bed and uh, presenting with challenging behaviours that will um, that'll be picked up, whereas the patient who is, is quieter and perhaps more uh, compliant, but nonetheless still um, cognitively impaired and um, and drowsy, perhaps when they shouldn't be drowsy, they're the ones that are going to going to be missed. So I think it's just it's that combination of having a um, of making sure people are aware and looking out for it, and that they're looking out for all the potential features of, of delirium, rather than just those um, uh, just more challenging aspects. And and particularly between hyperactive and hyperactive delirium, do you find that there are different risk factors for those different types? Of um, well, I think they both have uh, their, their risks. So, um, you know, typically a patient who's hyperactive um, might present certainly as more distressed and that, that the, the hyperactivity may evolve into, you know, them wandering or even becoming, um, you know, in a minority of cases, aggressive or what have you. So there's obvious sort of, again, risks and reasons why those patients come to attention. But the, the hyperactive cases have the risks as well, you know, that they, uh, by, the, by the very nature of the disorder, they're unable to um, engage with treatment. Um, it's a kind of red flag that the situation is getting worse. And also a lot of cases will, will, will be mixed as well. So they, 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 in the same patient, they might have a period where they're hypoactive, which can translate at some point into a hyperactive state. And therefore, you know, there's all the risks um, um, can, can be sort of contained within a single patient. Yeah. And 
you discuss ways in which we can optimise the environment um, for patients with delirium. And I think you even mentioned there's one study that was specifically in uh, medical and surgical patients that uh, showed environmental factors could reduce delirium by 30%. What, what are those practical steps that people can maybe think about when they're managing patients with delirium to, to sort of reduce the risk? It's just taking a step back, really, and most medical settings are not primed for orientating uh, patients so it's just it's just clinicians really having to think about what they could do um, to 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 aid this person who's really struggling with their level of cognition so um, you know on a a bustling ward environment I might have lots of different people coming in and interacting with with the patient so one thing you can do is try and uh, manage that and having um, just reduce the amount of contacts, uh, not re- the reduced amount of contact time, but just the amount of different people that are coming in. And then just thinking about, you know, what if this person's struggling with their cognition, how else can we um, um, help them? So have they got their hearing aid? Have they got their glasses? Um, is there a is there something within that room that's going to help them identify uh, the date and the time? I often go to rooms where patients haven't got any of those things, you know. So um, a newspaper just or a current newspaper with the day's date on can be useful. Or writing that on a, a board at the the foot of the bed, or making sure there's a, a clear clock. And the, one of the other key features is the loss of the normal sleep wake cycle. So any efforts that can be made to kind of promote the idea that a patient ought to be awake during the day and um, and asleep at night. Um, so the you know the lighting in, in clinical settings, making sure it's not you know, hugely bright at night and um, or, or hugely bright even during the day, but it's kind of mirroring uh, what's going on outside the the, the units. You also mentioned in the article about um, the importance of thinking about reversible causes of um, delirium and specifically in thinking about delirium in end-of-life um, patients or patients at the end of life. Um, how much do you need to think about sort of balancing the investigations and treatments um, of reversible causes with any potential distress that they could cause? And how do you sort of practically think about managing those situations? Uh, From my point of view as a psychiatrist, I think it's certainly very helpful for, you know, at least some thought to go into what those reversible causes may be. Uh, The next step is then thinking about how robustly you, you may or may not actually be wanting to pursue them because the whole process of them uh, pursuing and reversing them can be can be distressing. Um, I'll hand you over to Mike to, to comment further on that. Well, we know that drugs are, are, are an important uh, precipitant uh, of delirium. Some of those drugs are, are going to be related to symptom control, for example, antiemetics or uh, analgesic drugs. I think if there's a, a clear delirium that has started that seems to be consistent with the, uh, an increase in dose or an, or an introduction of a new drug, then it would certainly make sense to either reduce the dose or, or to halt that drug for a, or suspend it for a day or so to see if symptoms of delirium improve. 
Um, I, I, sometimes that's more difficult if someone's if you think that someone's in pain and actually the you know their pain is controlled. Um, but sometimes uh, titrating downwards or or reducing the dose or or trying to get a, reach a better balance of the of the effect of the medicines versus any adverse effects like drowsiness is important. Um, I think if patients are, are frail to begin with, more intensive investigations, for example, is probably going to be less. But nevertheless, a, a blood test to exclude um, hypercalcemia or some other biochemical abnormality, I think, is, is always worthwhile just to check uh, whether there's uh, some other explanation. Sometimes drugs are blamed for the onset of delirium, but actually a blood test reveals that the patient has gone into renal failure or is hypercalcemic. Um, and I think at that point, it's, it, those are, are less likely to be reversible. Um, and at least that can inform the clinician about whether to persist with drug treatment. Delirium is one of the only aspects of terminal symptom control that can benefit from hydration. And I just wondered, there's obviously been a lot of controversy or lots of discussion around the use of IV fluids and a sort of um, or subcart and IV fluids in end of life care, and whether there is a role for or a developing role for um, IV or subcart fluids as a as a management for delirium, or has there been much discussion around that? You're right. It's a very controversial issue. Um, hydration at the end of life. Um, it, it symbolises an awful lot of good and bad uh, aspects. Uh, it can represent uh, unnecessary invasive treatment uh, from for some from some perspectives, um, but equally for some others, it can represent a sense that someone is trying to do their best to reverse the delirium. Um, for our own sort of practice, I think the, the evidence suggests that it's neither specifically harmful nor is it necessarily particularly effective. Uh, I think my tack is always if I think that there's a, a chance that this delirium might be reversed is to say or to explain to the patient and the family members that let's try some intravenous fluids uh, and some other changes uh, for 24 hours. Um, if there's no improvement or if the patient has deteriorated in that time, then I think we, we suspend the, uh, the intravenous fluids uh, and then focus on more comfort care. Um, so certainly, if there's an infection, or uh, if the patient is, uh, you know, is uh, suffering with, sep- you know, a, a significant chest infection or has sepsis, then hydration, some anti- IV antibiotics, again for a 24-hour, 48-hour period, as a trial, um, can be helpful. And again, if the patient clearly is showing no improvement or is continuing to deteriorate despite uh, those interventions, then it's clear that this is an irreversible delirium. And I think sometimes that offers comfort or at least some sort of sense to the families that um, uh, limited medical uh, interventions have been applied. And I think they can then understand or they're they're better able to appreciate that despite that treatment, uh, the patient has deteriorated, which means that um, the the, the disease is overwhelming and and they can prepare themselves for the patient's death then. Drug treatments are often used sort of in the management um, of delirium and um, perhaps you could comment on uh, sort of the evidence base or perhaps lack of evidence base there is in particularly end-of-life care and, and drug treatments for delirium and, and how clinicians can practically um, think about prescribing in those situations. Sure. It, it is a difficult sort of area. Um, I, certainly, I think the first kind of move in management is to identify uh, any reversible causes and, and act on those as, as much as possible. Um, sometimes just simply uh, altering existing drugs or reducing the dose is enough to um, improve the, the symptoms and no other specific management is required. 
Um, more often than not, I think um, symptoms of delirium uh, persist. They can be very frightening uh, or distressing for patients. Um, and so some sort of intervention is required um, to specifically treat those uh, that, that distress. The evidence base is pretty kind of poor in, in terms of the number of studies or the quality of the of the studies. Um, but what seems to be, uh, a, a, there is a consensus that using something like low-dose haloperidol would be uh, an important first-line treatment for patients um, to, to manage the delirium. Um, the, the aim of the treatment really is to is to uh, is to reduce the the distressing thoughts or the or the abnormal thoughts that the patients are are experiencing. Sometimes the haloperidol alone isn't going to be sufficient because patients become very anxious or frightened, and adding uh, a benzodiazepine alongside that uh, is sometimes required. Uh, that that sort of initial treatment uh, or management may may be enough to help the patient uh, and nothing further is needed um for some few patients are much more distressed and agitated much more frightened and require a sort of an escalation of treatment um more powerful drugs that uh, are aimed at uh, controlling that distress and in those situations, oral medicines may no longer be tolerated or acceptable, and sometimes uh, injections or subcutaneous infusions may be required. Uh, although um, a lot of these drugs that are used in that context uh, have sedating side effects, really the aim of the treatment is to um, uh, reduce the distress that patients are experiencing with sedation being a consequence of that rather than the primary aim of the treatment. Just wondering what some of the side effects might be that we should look out for in those situations. With haloperidol being the, the, the usual first-line treatment when antipsychotics are used, then um, like any other antipsychotic or, or like a lot of them, it's got the potential to cause extra pyramidal side effects. So it's possible that that could provoke in the patient um, a change in muscle tone, an increase in rigidity, and um, actually quite extreme versions of that in a minority of patients. The other slight challenge with antipsychotics is that they have the potential to make the cognitive element worse, although um, it, obviously most people they don't, but there's always that that potential. And going back to the, the, the movement disorders that can be provoked, then if someone's got um, an underlying disease process such as Parkinson's or Lewy body dementia, they're particularly sensitive to those effects. It's often very difficult to know, uh, particularly with the Lewy body dementia, whether uh, that is there in the background. There certainly is a potential for uh, that to be exacerbated. Um, if we know that's there, then um, that, that might be a case where we're reaching for an alternative such as a benzodiazepine. That's very useful and that's very clear. And something that sort of links into all of these aspects that we've discussed is communication with the patient and with the family and really being able to do that as, as soon as possible in the process so that they're still able to contribute to any discussions and any decisions around their care. What advice would you give to uh, people about how to conduct discussions sort of in advance with patients and their families around the risk of delirium and these complicated decisions around treatment and, and medications? Uh, I think firstly in terms of uh, communication with patients, 
Um, quite a number of patients are actually aware that their memory or their concentration is impaired or that they're seeing or hearing things that they don't think are quite right, but nevertheless they, they're not sure what to believe. And I think just affirming with a patient that uh, they're probably experiencing a delirium or just saying to them that you know you can see that their concentration or memory is impaired is, is, is enough um, validation in some, uh, for some people. Um, clearly for relatives and families, they recognize a change. And in fact, sometimes it's the family that first recognizes the change in behavior or, or personality in the patient. Um, I think explaining to those family members that you too can also see a change in the patient, um, that it's probably a, a combination of the, or reflects a combination of the patient's frailty from their disease, um, as well as some other factors like medicines um, or other, or some other acute on chronic um, insult like an infection. Um, uh, I think it's important to say to uh, family members that we can undertake some limited investigations, we can rebalance the medicines to try and improve things, um, but also say that if after a day or so of, of trying that, if things don't improve, then it seems uh, that you'd be more worried that this is an irreversible decline rather than a, a reversible delirium. Uh, I think it's also worth state uh, quite often family members their priority really is um, to make sure that the patient is comfortable and not distressed uh, quite often the the family members can appreciate that the patient is deteriorating or perhaps close to death and and really their priority which is what we should have as our own as our clinical priority is to manage the patient's distress as much as possible and are there other practical ways that you can support families obviously during this sort of quite distressing period? Um, in terms of um, wider uh, resources, we've listed a number in the paper, but I think these are very acute situations. There's a high emotional context. Um, I think the, the simplest and most effective um, form of support is just an empathic clinician, uh, doctor or nurse, explaining to the, the, the family that um, this is a, a potentially serious situation. It may represent the start of an irreversible decline um, for the patient. Um, uh, and I think a lot of it's going to be, uh, a lot of support is going to be undertaken on the ward, really. You've been listening to Michael Bennett and Christian Hosker discussing management of delirium in palliative care. If you want to read more, their review, Delirium and Agitation at the End of Life, is now available on the bmj.com.